Looking at our world from a theological perspective, this is the Theology Central Podcast, making Theology Central. Good evening, everyone. It is Monday, February the 21st, 2022. It is currently 5.41 p.m. Central Time, and I'm coming to you live from the empty sanctuary of Victory Baptist Church, located right here in the middle of nowhere, Texas. And I know it's Monday, so typically I'm not here on Monday. Typically I'm not, but no matter what I do when Sunday ends, I I can't speak for, for all people, but whenever Sunday is over after all of the teaching, all of the preaching, after everything I do, after all of the hours I spend either in behind a pulpit or in front of this microphone, when it's all said and done, and the lights are turned out here in this sanctuary. And I walk through the door, make sure it's locked. And I walk to my car and I start driving, the, what, 20 minutes back home. As I drive away from the church, I always feel like, man, I wish I would have done that better. Man, I wish I would have done. And I walk away frustrated that I didn't do things exactly the way. In other words, things never worked out exactly the way I wanted them to. I'm never completely happy or never completely satisfied. So that means when I get home on Sunday evening, usually I'm restless and I'm like, man, I wish I would have done this. And then Monday turns around and then I'm like, okay, I just need to take a day off. And and then nope, nope, nope. Got Get back in the car, go back. So I, I came back here and last night, the last thing I did was I kind of introduced uh, a, a study on the topic of doctrine. And and it was, it, it it's what it was supposed to be, but it wasn't necessarily what I wanted in the sense like what I was trying to do, I understood, but, but I also knew that it was going to be very tedious going through this Greek word, this Greek word, this Greek word, this Greek word. And I know it wasn't going to be the most exciting thing. So, in some ways, that's what it was kind of designed to do, but I, I, I guess I, I felt like that I didn't necessarily do a good enough job in my introduction letting everyone know. So so bottom line is I, I, I drove away unhappy. So when I came back, I was like, you know what? Let's, I've got this book right here. Let's, let's just jump right back in and study doctrine. But as I was doing that, I looked and said, well, you know what? Sometimes when you're, when you're kind of frustrated about this or, or things are just not sitting with you right in your mind or in your in your emotions sometimes one of the good spiritual disciplines is just to stop everything take a deep breath and spend some time and more of a devotional thought right spend a little time and a more of a devotional thought before I try to get back here and unpack how I'm going to handle the the subject of doctrine and see which Greek words which Hebrew words and, and once I kind of get back into that more of an academic, teaching, let's just take a few minutes and do something more devotional. Now, I don't know if I'll get to the doctrinal study tonight, to the study on doctrine, but I know this. Um, When I say, yeah, the study of doctrine, I don't want to start. See, now I'm going to start talking about the meaning of the word. Okay, I'm not going to do that. But I, I, I just realized that my copy of The Imitation of Christ was sitting here. And we've been working on this book for a very long time for those who may be new and you don't know anything about the imitation of Christ written over 500 years ago. And it's one of, it's a strange book. And it's strange in this way. For some weird reason, the book has influenced people from all different theological backgrounds. I I've, was introduced to the book 
and an independent fundamental Baptist church in Nebraska. (laughs) What is bizarre about that is I don't think anyone in that church understood that the book that they were recommending was a book written written by someone who was in a Catholic monastery over 500 years ago. The book has Catholic theology woven in and through it. There's still much good in it, but, and it's just weird. Like, it's almost like, hey, even if you'll find these, like, books put out put out by a, a, a Protestant publisher, it'll be like, you know, the 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 best or the the most important 50 books in the history of the church, many cases the imitation of Christ will be in that collection or on that list. So I just I just find it interesting that the book has had such a profound impact, but a lot of times people don't really understand the theology behind it. So I wanted <laughs> This this goes back now. I think it's been like over two years. Really at the beginning of the pandemic, I just knew people were going to get distracted and yelling and screaming and fighting and arguing about everything else. So I tried at the beginning of the pandemic to say, hey, while everyone is yelling and screaming, use this opportunity to grow spiritually. Use this opportunity to find things to meditate on spiritually. Or you can get caught up in politics and conspiracy theories and yelling and screaming and arguing. And when the pandemic is over... You're not going to be better off spiritually. In fact, you may be worse off spiritually because you allowed all of the things happening to distract you from the things of God. So I try to tell everyone, hey, buy a copy of The Imitation of Christ. Let's read that. I also try to get people to, to, to study the book of Proverbs because I was trying to give people things to focus on. But after all of this time, we still haven't finished the book. And we're still working through it. So the imitation of Christ, Thomas Akempis. Yes, if there, when when Catholic theology presents itself, I definitely will let you know. We talk through it. Um, that's I'm glad that I did take time um, to go to a Catholic university to work on a degree in Catholic theology, so that I feel like I I can speak about Catholic theology somewhat from a position of knowledge and not ignorance. And so I think I I'm pretty good at saying no, no. See, that's yeah, that's going the Catholic direction right there. And we just did that in the last chapter where we spent all of the time working on the theology of conscience, looking at the Catholic teaching of conscience. So I think that was beneficial to everyone, but we're going to advance this tonight. Book, we're in book two. If you don't understand, The Imitation of Christ is broken down in basically four books. And we're in book two, chapter seven. And my copy, it's page 74. And yes, even though it's over 500 years old, it's still influencing many Christians from around the world. And we're gonna look at it and see what we agree with, what we disagree with, what we think is biblical, and what we, d- we think is unbiblical, all right? Are you ready? Chapter 7, book 2. The chapter is entitled, The Love of Jesus Above All Things. The love of Jesus above all things. Now, I could just stop right there and we could have about a 45-minute discussion about that concept. As a Christian, we know we are called to love the Lord thy God with all of our heart, with all of our mind, with all of our body, with all of our soul. We are to love God supremely. But we all know that no matter how many calls we hear, how many commandments we hear about loving God supremely, we all know that we fall so very short of it. We constantly fall short of it because our flesh craves and loves so many other things. 
So a chapter here about loving Jesus above all things, we know is going to be extremely convicting and extremely condemning. This is very important, especially from a Protestant perspective. Yes, we are called to love God supremely. We should be convicted whenever we fall short of that. And we will find ourselves falling short of that continually if we're honest with ourselves. Remember, the hope of our salvation is not in my ability to love God supremely. The hope of my salvation is in the Son who loved the Father perfectly because there's a perfect love amongst the Trinity. One God, three distinct persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. There is a perfect love within the Trinity. And Christ loves the Father perfectly. And when I am, and as by faith, his imputed righteousness, his righteousness is imputed to me. His perfect and active obedience is imputed to me. So my security and my salvation is, yes, in Christ, I love God with all my heart, mind, body, and soul. In Christ, I do love God correctly. In Christ, I have the right kind of love. In practice, I'm always falling short. I never love my neighbor the way I'm supposed to. I never love God the way I'm supposed to. But in Christ, I do both perfectly, not in practice, but in my position, because I stand covered in the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ, his active and passive obedience. All right? So, on one hand, I want us to be convicted by this. and one hand, I want us to be condemned by this. On the other hand, I don't want it to turn into some, you know, hey, this is the way to be saved. No, I'm saved by faith. I'm called to love Christ, but I will always fall short. But let's see how Thomas Akempis handles this. The love of Jesus above all things. He says this, and I quote, this is the first paragraph. Blessed is he who understands what it is to love Jesus and to despise himself for Jesus's sake. All right. It starts off very powerful. Blessed is he who understands what it is to love Jesus and to despise himself. Now I want you to just stop and I, at least, like if I, if I wasn't live on the air right now, if I was here in this sanctuary and I wasn't live on the air, what I would do right now is I would, I would write, I would grab a notebook and I would write that down. Blessed is he who understands what it is to love Jesus and to despise himself for Jesus's sake. And I would write that down in my notebook. And then I would just stand, I would start walking up and down the center aisle here in uh, the church, right between the pews, I would just start walking back and forth and I would just start thinking about that and talking to myself about that. Do I really know? And I would start asking myself this question. Do I really know what it is to love Jesus and to despise myself? Let's be honest. We have a tendency to love ourselves and to despise Jesus. Now, I know, I know, I know if you've been going to church for any length of time, I know you know all the right words. I know you can give me the right answers and say, no, 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 no. I love Jesus and despise myself. But if we truly despised ourselves, let's do this. Let's do this. Um, let's look up the word despise. Let, let's, I didn't even think about this. Let's just look this up. Let's look this up. I'm just going to grab this. I'm going to do, I'm going to look up despise. 
grabbing an iPad here, despise, despise, feel contempt, or deep, uh, basically the idea of, of feel contempt. Right, something to be repugnant. In other words, we feel like like if I despise it, it's 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 repugnant. It's it's disgusting. I don't want anything to do with it. All right, um, despise here from Merriam-Webster to look down on with disrespect or aversion, to regard as negligible, worthless, or distasteful. To look down on with disrespect or aversion. To, to, to regard as negligible, worthless, or distasteful. Do you really see yourself as worthless, distasteful? Do you really see yourself as, you, you dis, in a sense, you look at yourself with disrespect, with aversion? Or going back to a different uh, dictionary, do you have contempt for yourself? Do, do, you, do you have a, it's a deep, repug, uh, it's repugnant to you? It's you, you, you despise yourself. You, you have nothing to do with yourself. You, you see what you really are. Blessed is he who understands what it is to love Jesus and despise himself for Jesus' sake. Do we truly despise ourselves? Truly despise ourselves. Now, I think this kind of circles us back to a very important statement. I, I make this statement all the time. It's not original with me. Um, it, you can find it in Calvin's Institutes. It's a very basic concept. The concept is this. Until we truly see God as he is, we will never see ourselves as we truly are. Until we see God as he truly is, we will never see ourselves as we really are. We will never despise ourselves until we see God as he truly is. In other words, when we are confronted with the absolute perfection and holiness of God, then we see ourselves as we truly are, which is sinful, rebellious, ungodly, unloving. We truly, for the first time, get an understanding of who we are. And once we get a a true feeling of who we are, once we really really can sense it, really feel it, really come to terms with it. I know we always think our, we, we think we always think we're better than someone else. We always want to look down on someone else. We always want to condemn someone someone else. We're so quick to point out everyone else's failings, everyone else's sin, everyone else's wrong. And we feel a sense of of moral superiority when we're doing that. I look, it's it's built into us. Okay, let me this is going to bring in a lot of concepts here. I, I define sin all of the time. I usually define sin as this. Sin as the exaltation of the I, right? In other words, sin is the exaltation of self. Sin is the exaltation of the I. That's you. Sin lifts yourself up. And one of the ways we tend to lift ourselves up is by pushing other people down. So we're so quick to go, look at that, per- look at that person, look at that person, look at that person. And we condemn, 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 judge, 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 judge. And we will talk about the liberals. We'll talk about the homosexuals. We'll talk about LGBTQ. And we condemn, we condemn, condemn. Now, I'm not saying it's wrong to condemn the action and the sin, but we have a tendency to push people down because it makes us feel spiritually 
superior in some way, shape, or form. It's, it's kind of built into us to do this. Now, the only way to stop that is to see God as he truly is. Because the minute you see God as he truly is, you will be immediately confronted with your own shortcomings and your own sin. You will see yourself as you truly are. And once that happens, then you're like, woe is me, I am undone. And then you will find yourself you know, face down saying, I have sinned, I deserve nothing but your wrath. Now, this is so very important. It is only... When you see God as he is, that you understand yourself as you truly are, and you listen, you can never truly love Jesus until you understand who you are, because once you see yourself as you truly are, you will realize that the only place you can go, the only hope you have, the only comfort you have, the only the only thing you can turn to is Jesus Christ and his finished work upon the cross. Until you see yourself as you truly are, you will never love the son as you should. So really, this is the way it works. We first have to understand God as he truly is. We first have to understand God as he truly is. Think about that as theology proper. So we study theology so we're confronted with who God is. As we are confronted with who God is, then we finally can truly see ourselves as we really are. And when we see ourselves, we finally see what we are as human beings. We, we finally see what we are in, in a, a correct way. I think this is very important. Okay, think of it this way. When we see, we have to study to see who God truly is. That's theology proper. Once we, once we have a correct understanding of theology proper and we truly see who God as he is, it should not make us proud, should not make us arrogant. This is one of the things that's so, it's so wrong, but it happens. Sometimes people who have multiple degrees in theology, and I, I have multiple degrees in theology, and I've experienced this in my own life. Sometimes the more degrees we get in theology, it, it works the opposite way in which it should. The way it should work is the more I grow in my understanding of theology, the hum, more humble I should become, the more broken I should be. But sometimes the more we grow in our understanding of theology, we begin to see theology as a subject to be mastered instead of a God to be worshipped. And when we start seeing theology as a subject to be mastered, instead of something that brings us face to face with God to be worshipped, to be adored, to be, to be seen correctly, theology is simply the means which we try to see God correctly. Because by seeing God correctly, then I can see myself as I really am. So we have to see God as he truly is. That's theology proper. Once I see God as he truly is, what it should do is then open my eyes to who I really am. So then I can have a correct understanding of anthropology. A correct theology, in a sense, gives us a correct understanding of anthropology, the study of human societies and cultures, the study of, 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 of human beings. It really, it's anthropology. Now, I understand there, if, if we could go in a direction where we could look at it more precisely in, in its scientific 
terminology. I'm just using it in a generic way just so that you understand. A correct theology gives me a correct anthropology. I see who I am and I understand what people are. We are sinners. We are so far removed from God's holiness. Now, this is very important. Once I see God as he is, then I see myself as I, as I truly am. All right, as I see God as he truly is, I can understand myself as I really am. Once I figure that out, once, I, once I'm confronted with that, then and only then does Christ truly become lovely. Only then can Christ truly become the love of your life. Christ will never truly be the love of your life until you see God as he is and see yourself as you truly are. Once I see God as he is, I see myself as I'm tr- as I truly am, as, as I truly as, as I see myself as I truly am. When that occurs, then then I come to my senses and say I have sinned and I know the only place I can go is to the cross. And since I wake up in the pig pen and realize I'm a I'm I'm basically like a pig, right? I'm basically an animal. And, and that's that's where I am. And then then you'll come to your the only way to come to your senses is first a correct understanding of God as he is, then you see yourself as you truly are. Once you see yourself as you truly are, then and then only does Christ truly become lovely. So when we read Thomas, uh, Thomas Akempis saying, blessed is he who understands what it is to love Jesus and despise himself for Jesus' sake. Well, you're not gonna, uh, the only way to understand this is the cycle I just gave you. See God as he is, you see yourself as you truly are. Once you see yourself as you truly are, Jesus becomes lovely. Jesus becomes the love of your life because you realize without Jesus, you're, there's no hope. Without Jesus, you are condemned. Without Jesus, you're vile and worthless. It's only in Jesus. Is there any hope? Is there, is there any salvation? It's only in Jesus. And I think so many times we, we tend to forget who we are. And we stop loving Jesus supremely. We, we, we start looking to our own righteousness. We, 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 and, I, and, I, and I think this happens sometimes in some systems of soteriology. Even though it's may not what they're trying to accomplish, but what, what happens in many cases is that in some systems of soteriology, what they try to say is, if you, know, if you're, if you need to know that you're saved, Look to yourself. Look at your life. Look at your actions. Well, if if you're going to try to convince yourself you're saved or prove you're saved by looking to your own actions, then you're going to become, there's going to become a self-satisfaction with your own righteousness, with your own self-righteousness. And the only way, no, we have to constantly see our sin and realize our only, if I, the only hope I have for my salvation is found in the imputed righteousness of Christ. And that that imputed righteousness becomes, uh, it becomes, uh, our impu- that imputed to righteousness becomes lovely. Someone who's listening just asked this in chat. 
Is it even possible because of our depraved nature to truly see Christ as he truly is and to see ourselves as we truly are because we are so flawed? That is a great question. I would say this. We can do everything. We can do this. By the study of theology, study of God's word, we, we can be confronted with the holiness of God. I think that will, that should begin to shed light on who we are in a sense of we should realize immediately we're not, put it this way, we will definitely be able to realize we are not holy. We definitely will be able to realize how fall, how far we fall short of it. We will be able to begin to get a sense of our sin. I don't know if we can truly, truly grasp the depth of our depravity. I don't know if we can ever truly grasp that since there's so much sin inside of us that self-deceives us and tries to cover up our sin and our own excuses and, and, and self-righteousness. So I don't know if it can ever truly happen perfectly, but I know this, the more you view, the more you look to God, the better understanding you will have at seeing yourself. And Calvin tried to describe it this way. If, all, if the only co- color you've ever seen it's kind of brown. That's the only color you've ever seen. You've never seen any other color. Brown is all you've seen. You're going to compare things to that color. But if, uh, but if you see white, then then you're then even the slightest gray. Well, you'll know that. Oh, wait a minute. See how contrasting that is. In other words, you've got to see the you got to see the true standard so that you can have a right way of judging things. If you've only seen one color and your 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 understanding of of how different things look is going to be greatly hindered until you have something to compare it to. I know that's I'm really doing a bad job and paraphrasing Calvin there, but you can read the first chapter or the, yeah, I think it's the first two or three chapters of Calvin's Institutes to get a, a, a better description. I could run, I could run back to the church library really quick and grab a copy, but I won't do that now. So I don't know if we can ever truly, but I know this, the more we, 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 the more we put God's standard in front of us, which is God himself, be ye holy as he is holy, which we can never ultimately do, which means the only way I can be holy as God is holy is in Christ Jesus, because in my practical life, I will fall short. The more I see that standard, then I'll see what, I'll get a greater sense of what I truly am. And then only then will that give me a love for Jesus. So it's a good question. I don't know if it can ever perfectly happen, but I, I, but I do know this. That's the side, like, Thomas Akempis wants us to, to understand we need to love Jesus. And I'm arguing we never truly love him until this cycle, uh, uh, without this cycle. I see God as he is, then I get a sense of who I truly am. Once I see myself as I truly am, I realize I'm, I'm in trouble. I'm, I'm, I'm finished. And that makes Jesus lovely. That makes Jesus the love of our life. That makes the, the thing that we desire because without Jesus, I'm helpless, hopeless, and I am condemned. That's, that's the thing, the, the point I want to really, really drive home. I'm going to read a little bit more here of this paragraph, all right? Hopefully that, that makes sense. The, a correct theology gives me a correct anthropology. Once I have the correct theology and a correct anthropology, then only then can I have the right devotion or the right love for Jesus. 
Love for Jesus. I think what we have a tendency to do is I think we have a tendency to say, you should love Jesus because look at how he died on the cross for you. Now, I'm not saying that that's a wrong thing to point to, but just seeing Jesus die can give me a very human sympathy for him. Oh, here's a human being. Here's a human being suffering, right? Here's here's Jesus suffering. Now I can understand, okay, well, he's more than a human being. He's truly God. Okay, that makes his suffering bad. And so I can kind of feel bad because he's suffering and he's there. All of these horrible things are happening to him. But I think what really gives us love for Jesus is, is seeing ourselves as we truly are in comparison to the holy God. And then we see how horrible the situation we're in. And then Jesus becomes lovely. Then the sacrifice on the cross even becomes more meaningful. Just some thoughts there. All right, I'm gonna read this whole paragraph again, right? Blessed is he who understands what it is to love Jesus and to despise and to despise himself for Jesus' sake. Now, again, you can't despise yourself. You, you see how this cycle is just going to continue? We're just going to continue in the same cycle. I can't love Jesus until I see God as he is, because then that shows myself as I, as I truly am. Once I see myself as I truly am, Jesus becomes lovely. But I cannot despise myself. I will never despise myself. I will never loathe myself. I will never be viewed as repugnant to myself until until I see God as he truly is. When I see God as he is, I see myself as I am. Then I can despise myself. Then Jesus becomes lovely. Think about it this way. Jesus isn't lovely to me until I despise myself. Until, until I despise myself, Jesus will not be lovely because I, my, I will always almost, this is just the very essence of our sin nature. I will always love me more than I love Jesus. And I will only love Jesus supremely if I can get rid of the thing I love most, which is always ourselves. And I cannot despise myself until I, I take self and place it before the holy God. And I only do that by studying who God is. That's theology proper. So a correct, think of it about this way, a correct theology gives me a correct anthropology. The correct anthropology will be that I learn to despise myself and see how messed up we are as human beings, all right? Then once I see how that correct anthropology now that I've despised myself, will then give me a greater love for Jesus and a greater devotion to Jesus. So right theology, right anthropology leads to right devotion. Right? So blessed is he who understands what it is to love Jesus and to despise himself for Jesus' sake. You ought to leave your beloved. Now, I, I, this is very interesting the way he writes this. You ought to leave your beloved for your beloved. Now, the way this is written, let me, let me re- read to you the way this is written. I'll, 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 I'll try to describe it. You ought to leave your beloved, not a capital B, a lowercase b, beloved, for your beloved, uh, capital B, 
So you ought to leave your beloved, lowercase b, for your beloved, uppercase, a capital letter, beloved. In other words, I have to leave my, my beloved for the true beloved. Now, what beloved could that be referring to? All right. Um, yes, uh, someone just said, this is, this is so against today's culture of love yourself being uh, plastered everywhere when theology tells us to despise ourselves. Absolutely. Well, I, I, it's not even that theology necessarily, I will say theolo- the Bible says to deny yourself. I think that the theology proper will lead you to despise yourself, not just teaching you to do it. it, it it's what causes it. But yeah, it's very contrary to the popular culture. But uh, this idea that leave your beloved for your beloved. Now, there's there's a couple of scriptures they have here. Now, I... Before we look these up, let me just give you a warning. It's Thomas Akempis, okay? His use of scripture is highly suspect, okay? I sometimes, I don't know what in the world he's doing. He's just grabbing a random verse. and like, here you go, here you go. And I'm like, and then you read the verse and you're like, I don't know what you're talking about, but he lived 500 years ago. Uh, he lived 500 years ago. So it's very difficult for me to sometimes understand what he's saying. So, we're going we're gonna to look at these scriptures and see if we can figure it out. Yeah, I think this is an absolute beautiful statement. Abs- absolutely beautiful statement. And it's worth, uh, th- just the statement alone is worth this entire broadcast tonight. That statement alone is worth uh, the, the drive all the way out here just to do this. Okay, here we go. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to open this really quick because I want to make sure that if more chats come in, I can see it. All right, there we go. Now, we're going to go back to the text. Let me read it again. You ought to leave your beloved, lowercase b, for your beloved, uppercase capital. Then the, he, here are the scriptures given. Deuteronomy 6, 5. Now, I think I know what's going on here. I think I know where he's going here, but let me look. Deuteronomy chapter 6. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5. Deuteronomy 6, 5. And thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, and with all thy might. All right. Okay. Now, he, what's interesting is what Thomas Akempis is not doing here. I thought maybe he was going to try to find a scripture to identify the lowercase beloved. But, but I think he, he may leave that us up to us to figure that out. But he gives us uh, Deuteronomy 6.5. All right. Okay. That just, this, we are commanded. Let's just make sure we remember this. That is the law. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, body, soul is law, which ultimately it will condemn you. It will condemn you. And when you see that law, you should see how far you fall short of it. Therefore, that should lead you to despise yourself. In other words, once you're confronted with this law, love the Lord thy God with all your heart, mind, body, and soul. Immediately, once you see that, then you should real you should then you you're seeing God's law as it is. This should make you realize what you are in reality. You're not a lover of God supremely. This should make you despise yourself, and then you know your only hope is in Christ, who did love the Father correctly. Now I know that what this typically happens here, and I've made the same mistake in, in my past Christian life because I was taught it this way. How do, someone said, well, how do I know I'm saved? Do you love the Lord that God with all your heart, mind, body, and soul? Like it almost becomes a test to prove if someone is saved. 
So then you have to say it's the test, but you no one's going to do it perfectly. Well, then how is it a test? Now, it's a law that shows you the reality of your sin, which should drive you to Jesus and realize that only it, Jesus is the only one to love God, the Father, correctly. And in him, I do love God correctly. Now, I should strive to live by this, but I will never do it perfectly. This should constantly lead us to despise ourselves, and we should love Jesus even, and should lead us to love Jesus because it's only in Jesus where there's any hope of this law ever being accurately obeyed, all right? And now, you can convince yourself you do it, but I think you're, you're well, you've got a problem. Then they're going to point us to Matthew 22, 37. Matthew 22, 37. And I know what, I don't think this is going to help us at all. Matthew 22, 37. I know exactly where this is going to go. Matthew 22, 37. I think you already know where this is going to go. 22, 37. Yep. Jesus is going to say the greatest commandment, thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy mind, right? So that's, he's not telling us what the lowercase beloved is. He doesn't tell us. Now, he does do what the uh, church, the early church was, was com- it was pretty common for them to do. He does tell, tell us to go to the Song of Solomon. Now, I always get nervous here when people say go to the Song of Solomon because, man, this book is, man, people do crazy things with the Song of Solomon. But okay, <laughs> Song of Solomon. This is very common for the early church to do this. A Song of Solomon, chapter 2, verse 16. Song of Solomon, chapter 2, verse 16. My beloved is mine, and I am him. I am his. He feedeth among the lilies. This is common in the early church to make all of the Song of Solomon basically an allegory about the love of a believer with Christ or the love of the church with Christ. And you can, yeah, we could have a whole hermeneutical discussion about does that work or does that not work. So what's interesting is Thomas Akempis does not describe what this beloved is that we need to leave. He doesn't say, hey, that smaller case beloved is this, which to me is brilliant because it's not the same for all of us. What is the beloved that you need, and I'm going to use the words Thomas Akempis wrote, what is the beloved you need to leave for what should be your true beloved? Your true beloved is the eternal son of God, but you will not see him as your true beloved until you see God as he truly is, then you'll see yourself as you really are. Once you see yourself as you really are, you will despise yourself. Once you despise yourself, then and only then can you have any true love for Christ. He goes on to say this. For Jesus will be loved above all things. The love of things created is deceitful and inconstant. The love of Jesus is faithful and preserving. He who cleaves unto a creature shall fall with that which is subject to fall. He who embraces Jesus shall be made strong forever. Wow. That is some good stuff. Now, I, I want to go on to the next paragraph, but, but I would be foolish to do that. I would be like, you got to know when is enough is enough. That's enough right there to give us plenty to think about. All right. So 
phrases I want you to write down. Now, when I, anytime I've read the, the Imitation of Christ by Thomas Akempis, all the different times I've worked through the book, I've got notebooks and notebooks and notebooks where I'm just always writing down, writing down quotes from it, writing down quotes from it, okay? And uh, these are some powerful ones here. So here are the ones that jump out at me tonight. Blessed is he who understands what it is to love Jesus and to despise himself for Jesus' sake. Blessed if you understand that. And I've tried to help you understand how it takes place. If you want to kind of draw out like a, a chart, you can kind of draw it out. It starts with the theology proper. I see God as he truly is. Holy, holy, holy. The minute that be, the minute I am confronted with that holiness, then I immediately look to myself and I have a correct anthropology. And I'm like, whoa, woe is me. I am undone because I finally see myself. I see myself as I'm true, as I truly am. I see myself as as I am. And at that point, I'm undone. And I should lead to a despising of myself, a loathing of myself. All right. It should it should be that way. And 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 until we feel that despising of self, it's only then that Jesus becomes truly lovely because we have nowhere else to go. We have nowhere else to go. And I, before I read the next statement, I have to say this. Sometimes. Now, I got to be really careful how I say this. I got to be really careful how I say this because it's going to sound like I'm excusing or promoting sin and I'm not excusing or promoting sin. But sometimes, and I think this is even a biblical concept, sometimes it's the person who fell into sin, messed up, really, really, really messed up the most, who loves Jesus the greatest. Now that I'm not telling everyone to go, hey, you know, I just heard a podcast, honey. I'll be back. I'm going, I'm going to Vegas and I'm going to commit every sin I can come up with. Right. But when I come back, I'm going to love Jesus more. I'm not saying that's the way uh, uh, I, I'm not, I'm not. Uh, yes, I will. Uh, someone just asked me to repeat uh, the statement. I will in just a minute. Um, I'm, I'm not saying go do that. But what I'm saying is sometimes those who is forgiven much loves much. Someone who experiences that forgiveness. Now, that's no excuse. But I just think sometimes those who it's just so weird because. We sometimes don't feel the weight. Of our sin. Until we find ourselves and a scandal, something that's public, we get exposed. But we, we, we all, if we could all feel the weight of our sin with or without scandal, no matter what sin it is, because what we have a tendency to do is we always look to other people and go, well, I'm not like, I thank God I'm not like th those people. Now we know not to say those words because, well, we're Christians and we've read the Bible, but we, we do fall into that. And it's just weird that if we could all truly, truly see ourselves as the sinners we are, without the need for public scandal, we would be more humble, we would be more gracious, we would be more merciful, and we probably would, would change the way we approach other people when they, when they fall. But we, we, we have to see God as he truly is to see ourselves as we truly are. Once we see ourselves as we truly are, then we despise ourselves. Once we despise ourselves, then Jesus becomes truly lovely.
Now, the statement that I want you to remember is this. Blessed is he who understands what it is to love Jesus and to despise himself for Jesus' sake. Blessed is he who understands what it is to love Jesus and to despise himself for Jesus' sake. That's, that's the statement I want us, one of the ones I want us to write down. Then the second one. You want to leave your beloved, lowercase b, for your beloved, uppercase b, a capital B. Now, what's the beloved you need to leave? What's the beloved you need to walk away from? What is that beloved? Now, that beloved will always appear to be your beloved until you see God as he truly is. Then you see yourself as you truly are. Then you despise yourself. And then you realize your beloved can't help you. You realize that that thing you love that you hold on to can't fix your real problem, which is your sin. Then you'll have to find the, the true beloved who will do that. Now, let me just read the last part of this again one more time. The love of things created is deceitful and inconstant. The love of Jesus is faithful and preserving. He who cleaves unto a creature shall fall with that which is subject to fall. He who embraces Jesus shall be made strong forever. In other words, anything in this world we love, it's going to fall. It's going to fail. It's going to be corrupted. It's going to fall apart. It's going to let us down. It's only Jesus where that love is secure, but, but he's approaching it in a kind of a, like, almost like, Hey, go do this. And I'm trying to demonstrate the only way we can ever get to this point is this correct. Blessed is he who understands. I think this, this concept got to see God as he is. Then I see myself as as I truly are. Once I see that, then I despise myself. Once I despise myself, then Jesus becomes lovely. So Think of it about it this way. A lot of times people talk about, you know, having a good devotional life, a good, a, a good devotional life where you're really growing in an intimate relationship with Christ. I think the only way you can have a true devotional life is you got to have a correct theology, which gives you a correct anthropology, which then gives you the right heart for devotion. But if you don't have the right heart for devotion, then devotion just becomes basically a Bible study. But when I see God as he is, I see myself as, I'm, as I truly are. Then I despise myself. Then Jesus becomes lovely. Then spending time with Jesus in devotion, I'm spending, with, I'm spending time with my beloved. I'm spending time with the one who can forgive me because I'm a wretched person. There you go. That's the first paragraph of chapter seven. Wow. What a powerful little paragraph tonight. I'm glad I drove all the way out here, even though my original plan was to try to fix the doctrine, the study on doctrine that I wasn't happy with last night. I'm glad that I decided, I felt like mentally I wasn't ready to do that. But it's always important to spend some time and some devotional thought. And I'm glad we just did that because we got a little bit of theology, a little bit of anthropology, and now we kind of got a correct mind and heart for devotion. All right. Thank you, Twyla, for your questions and for comments and for participating. 
That's always encouraging. I always appreciate that. Anyone else who, who happened to be listening tonight, you can email me at newsif at yahoo.com. Newsif at yahoo.com. If this is the first time listening to anything that we are doing, the Theology Central podcast, the podcast is available anywhere and everywhere you get your podcast. We do Bible study exercises, which uh, are very, very important that we do. Uh, comment- news commentary. We do all kinds of different things, but it's all available. If you need any more information, uh, where to find our podcast, go to theologycentral.net. That's our pod page, theologycentral.net. It will give you all the places you can subscribe. And while well, you can also find our content, uh, well, I, I don't have the time to go through all the places our content is. If you if you want to find, uh, if you have a place in mind, email me. And if we're not there, I'll find a way to get there, all right? Newsif at yahoo.com. All right, thanks for listening to us discuss a book that's over 500 years old, but still some very relevant lessons to be found in it. Hopefully you found it to be beneficial. Thanks for listening. God bless.